Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Can any of the road teams pull off an upset in divisional weekend? Maybe a little bit of talk about the FFPC's round two playoff challenge. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Oh, I'm stealing bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch from my newsletter, bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his work at Rotoviz. And Sean, you've been writing up these FFPC playoff challenges. Wrote up the last week's one. You have another article over at Rotoviz talking about the Playoff Challenge 2, which starts this week. It's a little bit different, a little bit more condensed. We talked about it a little bit on the last show. Very fun contest. Another one where you broke down every team, the players to consider on each team. You can only play one player from each team, so you want to think about it from the team level. Uh, another great article breaking down that contest. But, Sean, before we jump into that, we got a fun weekend of football ahead of us. It's the weekend where... I mean, we've gotten some great games on Divisional Weekend in the last couple of years. Obviously, last year comes to mind immediately the Bills-Chiefs game, one of the best football games I think any of us has ever seen. You get these teams that are coming off a win in Wild Card Weekend. You have, uh, you know, the bye week teams now getting thrown back into the mix. Everyone is, is, you know, good football teams or at least football teams that are firing at all cylinders, playing good football, right, playing above – what they are. And we've seen some of these teams that go on runs from, from a wild card spot all the way to the Super Bowl. And you know, Tampa Bay did it a couple of years ago. Um, there's obviously several other examples. You look at a team like the Giants this year, uh, played really well to go and win in Minnesota. They're a great example of a team, the Giants, that have historically, when they've won their Super Bowls over the last decade plus, they've been doing it out of uh, lower seats and going on these these hot runs. We have seen that, and typically this is the week where it kind of becomes real. The Bengals last year, they had won at home against El, uh, against Las Vegas, and then they go into Tennessee and they upset the number one seed the next week, and then it's, well, can you go into Kansas City and do it again? But if you can, you're going to be in the Super Bowl, and they did. And so this is where we kind of find out, are these teams for real? Is Jacksonville for real? Are the Giants for real? Do they have a multi-week run in them? And they're they're going up against the best teams in the league. You know, those two teams are going up against the Chiefs and the Eagles. The Cowboys, another one. Are they for real, finally? I mean, they've had some good teams over the last decade. They have not made a Super Bowl for a long time now, obviously. They're heading into San Francisco, who, I mean, are they for real? Can, can they really make a run with Brock Purdy? Uh, and then the Bengals bill showdown that we've all sort of been anticipating for a while now. I mean, it's, it's an incredible weekend on paper. There's a lot of excitement. It's interesting. All of the spreads in, in these four games are more than, you know, the customary three points for home field advantage, if you will. I mean, they're all above that. They're all saying if the home team wins by three points, we're giving, you know, the road team is going to cover. The closest one is the Cowboys and Niners, which is basically at four points in mo- at most books right now. And, and I mean, again, 
get to three and a half, you get to four. That's a big difference than being at three or two and a half. I mean, four, not that much different than, you know, five and a half or six even. So it is, you know, a decent size spread. You just get to get to there, but that's the closest spread. You got the Bills as five and a half point favorites over the Bengals. You get the Eagles and Chiefs both over a touchdown, seven and a half uh, for the Eagles and nine for the Chiefs now as we're recording this. And so the market is saying, you know, we don't really believe in these upstarts. We don't really believe in these road teams. It's going to be a chalky season. The ones and the twos are going to win and and, and face off in, in championship weekend, which would be great. I mean, I think that would be a really fun championship weekend before really good teams. But I don't know that all these these uh, underdogs are, are dead, right? I mean, we we have uh, a lot to discuss with them. And, and that's where I kind of wanted to focus because I as I think through it, can see arguments for each of these teams but i can also see arguments against there are reasons that some of these teams maybe aren't poised to pull the upset so i can understand the lines as well it's a fun weekend to analyze it'll be a fun weekend to watch it should be a fantastic weekend to watch and i can't wait to get into the analysis with you here you mentioned the article on the site and these playoff games in many ways are the most fun for me to dive into the tools, look at the passing matchup rate the game level similarity projections, the advanced team stat, explore our fantasy streamer, all of those things and see kind of when they point in the same direction, when they point in some different directions. But I mean, the information that is out there now, the information that we provide, obviously information is available on some other channels also. It just, it, it makes it so fun to really dive into what these teams are doing and then when you have a playoff contest like the FFPC or if you're drafting an underdog, all of those things, there are so many different layers here that are just fun for those of us who love fantasy football, who love reality football. And then the Chiefs are back in the mix this week. I think that that will add to the excitement. The Philadelphia Eagles get to show what they can do as a Super Bowl favorite out of the NFC. We want to see Jalen Hurts as his career starts to take shape and he elevates to this level that Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow have been. Does his dual threat ability carry the Eagles? Does the acquisition of A.J. Brown make them the kind of juggernaut that they have appeared to be all season? Do those things carry over? Then I can't wait to watch what the Eagles do here because we've seen the intermittent eruptions this season. We witnessed how difficult it is to cover both A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. The injury to Dallas Goddard in some ways created the incentive for Philadelphia to really use Smith. And I think that what they found when they did is that he's the guy they hoped they were drafting when they made him a top 10 pick coming off of that Heisman season with Goddard now back and to have that trio. I just really think good luck to anyone trying to stop them. That game is going to be the most difficult one, I think, for a team to pull off the upset. But one of the things that you and I discussed and I think that makes this so cool. It makes it interesting that we have these big spreads is that for the underdogs, you have four teams that we think can probably move the ball Four teams that are exciting in one way, shape or form from a fantasy perspective. I mean, you have big underdogs with Joe Burrow who for all of the focus on Hertz and Mahomes and Josh Allen, Joe Burrow may be the best quarterback in the NFL right now. And I'll make the argument for him as we kind of break down that game. But obviously, when you have Joe Burrow, you can take your team to the Super Bowl, especially when you have those weapons. Trevor Lawrence, after what happened last week and after the 
emergence, you know, arguably renaissance that he had over the second half of the season. You have a Super Bowl winning head coach and play caller there. You have the athletic weapons at receiver, even though they're not given credit for being stars and probably aren't stars. When you have a big arm quarterback and athletic wide receivers, you can move the ball. Obviously, Dak Prescott and the Cowboys can move the ball. The issue with them is sort of the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the team and of the offense. But can Dak Prescott with CeeDee Lamb and those guys move the ball, even against the 49ers? Obviously, they can. Whether they will is a different story, but they can. That potential is there for not just scoring, but scoring a lot in a potential upset. And then you have this other team that I think it's the hardest one to predict a victory, but also one I've been playing a lot in playoff contests because I think it is possible. It is fun. And I like the hybrid nature that Daniel Jones brings. And so when if he's going to run the ball to that extent, if Isaiah Hodgins is going to play anywhere close to that level, they have Richie James as sort of a, a stealth threat, and we'll talk about him as we break down the game. But when you have Daniel Jones and this version of Daniel Jones with Saquon Barkley and Brian Dable, they also can move the ball. Now, it's going to be much different and more difficult doing it against the Eagles than it was against the Vikings. But this is a team, again, that it's emerging, ready potentially to break out, much like the Bills did at the beginning of the Josh Allen flip, when he goes from being erratic and interesting, but not particularly good, to a star. It's what we saw last year from Joe Burrow. We're tending to think of it as, this is Trevor Lawrence's time, this is Dak Prescott's time, but maybe Daniel Jones is the guy who is closest and is the best fit for pulling off something like this. And I think that one of the things that is going to pop out and probably in the first half, football games have a lot of randomness to them. So if the Giants jump out to the lead, if the Jaguars jump out to the lead, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's because they got to play and are hot and the Chiefs or the Eagles didn't get to play and are cold. Sometimes it's just random. But this dynamic of the team that got to play and gets to keep the momentum versus if you have the Chiefs or the Eagles and an extra week to prepare, these teams are almost impossible to stop anyway. Now getting healthy, two weeks worth of game planning. I mean, you could see the Chiefs and the Eagles score every possession in these games. Yeah, I I mean, I am right there with you that I don't think there's really anything to those ideas. But if we do want to try to break it down and, and, and analyze them on an on a individual basis i mean <clears throat> i would say i'm less concerned about the chiefs because andy Reid is very good coming off a of bye historically throughout his career i mean the extra time usually works well for him i'd also point to juju who you know some of the chronic knee stuff or whatever i don't i don't like have great data for this but i feel like when he's had a little extra time this year he's been better i know come early in the year he had a good game coming off a thursday night game i want to say it was I feel like he's played a little bit better, like out of the buy and stuff this year. Maybe that's not entirely accurate. Again, I don't really have the data behind it. But for me, I felt like he's looked fresher when he's had a little bit more rest. And that's, I think, a really key player for this team. Uh, if they can get him playing, you know, putting up a, a good game at any point, that's that's a pretty big boost to give them a third weapon behind Kelsey and McKinnon, who has basically become their only consistent producers Obviously, with Mahomes, you can kind of spread the ball around and use a lot of people, but um, you'd like Juju to be somewhat consistent. And then also, Kadarius Tony's a guy who has not been able to stay healthy at all, and the extra week might allow them to unleash him finally a little bit to a certain degree, at least in some red zone packages or what have you. So you look at Kansas City, you're like, okay, I mean, this team, I think, 
benefits more than than gets hurt by some time off. Uh, the Eagles, because of Hertz's injury, it's now been a long time since they've really kind of played together and played at full strength. Week 18, much was made of Hertz not running, not wanting to take any hits. It seemed pretty clear that it was like a directive. I mean, we're going to get you out there and get you some reps and get you reading the the, the defenses and, and feeling the flow of the game, but we're not going to let you take any hits and potentially re-injure your shoulder in a game that doesn't matter in Week 18. So there's people that are, I think are concerned that Hertz is more injured than he's letting on. They wouldn't let him play in the week 18 two weeks ago if he was that bad. And now he's had two more weeks. I mean, I'm more or less coming at it like he's pretty healthy. He kind of has to be if you look at his timeline and you think through the original estimates and everything. And the fact that they played him in week 18 at all. And the fact that he wasn't taking any hits week 18, probably just an abundance of caution and rightfully so. Like that's the way you would expect a smart team to play it. But to the extent that there's any validity to this idea of rust or what have you, for them, it's not just a buy. It's 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 been several weeks now since they've really ran their offense with Hertz. It's been over a month since he's been fully healthy. And having said that, I'm not sure I really buy that. You know, like I, I kind of agree with you that they're gonna. I think they have a shot to come out and be really sharp because uh, they have had plenty of time and they did get Hertz in a little bit in Week 18, and then he gets the feel of it a little bit. I think they played that perfectly, and then you know you, you get an extra week to prep, and it's not like he hasn't been on a football field for a month. So it's it'll be I mean that'll be an interesting game. You mentioned that the Giants feel like the toughest upset to predict, and then also you're saying maybe maybe it's Daniel Jones this time. And it is interesting. I, I loved hearing your 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 comments on the different quarterbacks because a lot of times it's the guy that we don't expect. It's like the only way to put it. And we talk about chaos in the regular season. There can be chaos chaos in the playoffs too, right? And again, I'll go back to those comments I made about the Giants in the past. I mean, Eli Manning is the quintessential example of a quarterback who got hot in a playoff run. And I mean, Eli Manning was a good quarterback and people like to, I think sometimes act like he was better than he was, but I mean, he was not a great quarterback. He was never at any point a top five quarterback in the NFL, but he did play up in the playoffs at times. And there are quarterbacks that do that, that are a little bit streakier, that are able to play at a high level over a period of time. It's a position that requires a lot of, you know, uh, mental focus and mental toughness. Certainly I, the health elements we saw like with Justin Herbert, once he got that rib injury this year, really, I think affected his play for a few weeks, maybe longer. We don't really know. You can understand why some quarterbacks at times are, they're a little healthier. They're a little more locked in for whatever reason they're at their peak and they can, they can put it together. I mean, Joe Flacco is another guy. I don't know that he necessarily played amazingly well in the Ravens Super Bowl runs, but when you see quarterbacks like that, Nick Foles obviously wins the Super Bowl with the Eagles you can see quarterbacks of those caliber go on and win a Super Bowl. There is something to be said about, okay, guys can get sort of get hot over a period of time, especially when they have a good team around them. Another one that would be an example for that would be obviously Brock Purdy. I mean, I think that's sort of the Nick Foles example. We're talking about a backup with a really good team around him. But Jones strikes me as that type of player. I think Dak and and Trevor Lawrence are as well. I mean, what we've known from Lawrence right to this point, by about midseason, the concern was that he was a bust. And since then, he's played well enough that I don't know that we can really feel like he's ever going to make, you know, all the way good on the hype that, I mean, Trevor Lawrence is a guy that we thought was going to be the number one pick in his draft class whenever he came out two years prior to him being draft eligible. That's a lot of hype. That's, you know, LeBron James hype and Bryce Harper hype. You know, well in advance, it's as much hype as you can get from football is when he's a you know a true freshman winning a, a national championship, and everyone's like, okay, this guy's going to be the first overall pick someday. I don't know that he's going to be the next Patrick Mahomes. He's 
played well enough down the stretch, though, that we now don't think he's a bust, right? So w- what are we going to get out of Trevor Lawrence? And we kind of saw both sides in the in the first game of the postseason. He throws four picks in the first half. He's still a developing player. He had all of last season with Urban Meyer and felt like a wasted season in some, some uh, respects. In the second half, he's the catalyst for the third biggest comeback in, in postseason history, if you will. So I, I argued on the last show, I think that was more the Chargers defense than the Jaguars going out winning that game. But, I mean, Lawrence is a guy that if he can play to a certain level, he certainly has the talent. He can create an upset to your argument. Uh, and I think Dak is a very similar guy as well, where people always want to go back and forth on Dak. Is he elite? Is he terrible? I mean, I think he's just an above average, non-elite, good quarterback who is streaky as well. And if he plays like he did last week and he played very well last week, he can go into San Francisco and win this game. I mean, I, I really believe that. So I think your focus on the quarterbacks is, is um, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. I didn't even talk about Burrow there, but those three underdog quarterbacks all have within them. And Jones, I think, has shown enough this year and has played to enough of a level in Dable's system. And we can see how that has has impacted Jones's consistency, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. He's not fumbling the ball as much anymore. He's not turning the ball as much anymore. Because he's able to play within a system that is designed around his strengths, and that's good coaching. Um, so anyway, those the quarterback elements are it, it is fascinating, and it would be fascinating to see if Jones could be that guy, as you mentioned. If Dak has his moment, and I think he's good enough that he can have his moment and and be streaky enough and be this guy that we're looking back on and talking about a couple of years from now. Remember when Dak had that great playoffs and took Dallas sort of on his back to the Super Bowl. I don't think that's out of his range of outcomes as a quarterback. Same with Lawrence, certainly the same with Burrow. We watched him do it last year, play at a really high level and, and key downs. You still need some luck. You still need some fortune, um, you know, fumbles and, and big plays when you're the underdog. But it is really fun to think about what we could get out of these quarterbacks when these teams are, you know, going to need to pull out all the stops here this weekend. Maybe the place to start would be with this Bengals-Bills matchup and sort of what stops the Bengals will have to pull out now that they get stuck with a road game as opposed to a neutral game. They have a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover, you might argue. Obviously, that's not really what happened, but they did start 4-4, four and four, and then the second half of the season, they rip off eight consecutive victories and they win in the first round of the playoffs against the Baltimore Ravens, a little bit of a disappointing playoff victory there. When you consider how dominant they had been over that eight game stretch, a variety of interesting things pop up when you look at these two seasons in the first half, Joe Burrow actually averages more fantasy points per game He goes from around 26 to a little over 24 when we look at the second half. You look at his numbers and what they're trying to accomplish on the two sides. They drop from a 66% pass rate to a 61% pass rate, but they run four more plays per game. And so the actual passing volume doesn't drop a lot. The rushing volume goes up a decent little amount. The points per drive jump. But one of the funny things there is that A big part of that is that they average 2.6 points per drive in the two games that Joe Mixon misses, which is the best that they do. If you take out 
one of the worst and also most heavily used running backs in the NFL for a couple of game stretch, you're going to score better. So that part I think is kind of entertaining. Obviously, Joe Mixon is going to play. And so they won't have that bonus for them. The other part of this is that Joe Burrow does also, when you split it out, average over 26 points per game when Jamar Chase plays. So part of the reason that his fantasy points per game drop in that second stretch when they are more effective is that he doesn't have this weapon who, despite the drops, probably is right there with Justin Jefferson in terms of being the most sort of incandescent, just electric and dominant wide receiver in the NFL. There are some disappointing things to being a football fan right now from an offensive perspective, but we are also living in an age where we're going to get to watch, you know, hopefully a 10 to 15 year career from Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase and look at these guys go head to head for records and greatness, you know, for an entire era for an age. And so that part, uh, it's just a, a wonderful gift to have, but that also includes the playoffs. And last week, Jefferson was shut down. Chase helped carry a little bit of a passing game. The Bengals did have after they lose their left tackle, the Ravens obviously controlling the ball and putting a lot of pressure on Burrow when the Bengals do have it. But you have Jamar Chase, you have T. Higgins. Those pieces missed a lot of time this year, and yet the Bengals are able to evolve at midseason and move on. And one of the things that is a focus there is how sort of the offensive line comes together and gels. And now we don't have that because of the injuries. An interesting note in working through the different tools and these tools are fueled by the fantastic data from sports info solutions. The pressure percentage for Burrow actually jumped from 23% in the first half of the year to 27% in the second half of the year. But his rate of taking sacks dropped from one every three pressures to one every seven pressures. And so part of that, you know, you can put on the offensive line as well in terms of even when there's pressure, how they're working it, how he's able to move in the pocket, but his understanding of what he needed to do and his ability as the quarterback. And we talk all the time about quarter about sacks. Yeah, I mean if if you have a line that's giving you that old school David Carr commercial where it's just him in the center, if you have the Chiefs line in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago where the ball is snapped, the defenders are flowing through, Mahomes is having to like run backwards and vertical, and by the time he's actually able to look down the field, he's like at the sideline and 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage. So any throw that he makes is obviously going to be more or less worthless. When you have that type of pressure, there's not that much a QB can do, and I think that that's what we're worried about this week. That's why the Bills, in addition to just being the Bills and being at home, that's why this line is very enthusiastic about Buffalo's chances but Joe Burrow has demonstrated an ability to handle pressure better as the season has gone on. And I think that you have to also put some of that on Zach Taylor, where the play calling has worked more specifically to neutralize some of the things that are going on. The frustrating part of the Bengals during so much of the last two years has been the weirdness of the play calling, either using Joe Mixon too heavily to where you've got this really low end piece that's just that's siphoning a lot of total value out of your offense because those are low value plays or the Bengals are just dumping it off, dumping it off. And even when they're successful, it's difficult to 
extend drives that way. You need to have Chase. You need to have Higgins creating some big plays. And Chase has come out at different times, even as a young player, and said, "Look, we gotta get. I'm getting behind people. You gotta give us a chance. You gotta throw the ball down the field." The question for the Bengals in this game, and I think it's really going to come down to this. Obviously, the Bills have lots of things that they control themselves. And Josh Allen, if he hits the deep balls, they're going to be difficult to beat. If he throws three picks, they're going to be much easier to beat. When there are parts of it on that side that matter as well. And the Bengals do have a very solid defense across the board that makes it difficult to just blow up against them. But this game is going to come down to whether or not the Bengals can hold out long enough and whether taylor dials up enough deep shots to chase and higgins to keep them honest the bills are just attacking downhill on defense this entire game the Bengals are going to swarmed under I mean, you've got to get chase and higgins loose for big plays that's what's going to turn the game particularly that they've been willing to pass more with intent i'm looking at some of the pass rate over expected data right now i mean the first five games of the year their high was just under uh, a plus nine percent overexpected which is very high but they were just under that then they had another game close to plus five percent the other three are basically neutral one aggressive pass game you get up around nine ten percent uh above expected you're you're pretty aggressive one aggressive game one moderately aggressive at plus you know five percent ish their next two games week six and seven is really kind of where i think their season turned because they started to pass with more intent in those games 19% 19% over expected, 21 over percent percent over expected those two games. And then from including those games from then on and through last week in the wild card round, nine of their 12 most recent games have been 9% or higher pass rate over expected. They have another game at about 6%. So that's 10 of the games. They've had a couple kind of run heavy games in there, which is or, or one that's very run heavy week nine. They ran almost 40 times. But they've been more willing to pass with intent. If you go over to Ben Baldwin's really great site, you look at weeks one to five, they were throwing a little bit lower than league average on first and tens. Uh, Overall, they were a 2% pass rate over expected team from weeks one to five. From week six to week 18, they've been a 12% over expected pass team, 15% over expected on first and tens. They're willing to throw with intent on early downs if you look at just uh from week 15 till now their weekly pass rates over expected have been 13 percent or more for four straight weeks obviously the week 17 game got canceled but 15 16 18 19 last week in the wild card round in that span they've been throwing uh on first and tens about 19 percent more than expected or 19 percentage points more than expected the league average would be just below 50 percent they're up about two-thirds of the time passing on first and tens and that's i mean the game that got canceled against the bills i mean very short game obviously we're thrilled to be hearing all the positive news about demar hamlin weird to look back at what actually happened in the moments prior to that but there was a little bit of football that was played the Bengals came out throwing and were effective and went down the field and scored a touchdown right away on the bills and 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 looked good doing it bills came back and got a field goal drive and Josh Allen had to scramble a few times on that possession. It looked like the Bills defensively weren't allowing, uh, excuse me, the Bengals defensively weren't allowing the Bills to do exactly what they wanted to do. They're having to kind of improvise a little. They get a field goal drive. Bengals got it back and we're starting to move the ball again. And then obviously the injury occurred and, you know, much more important things took over at that point. But looking at the matchup, 
looking at that little brief glimpse of these two teams playing, it was in Cincinnati, but the Bengals looked like they were ready to play in that game. They looked like they were ready to come after Buffalo, like they had answers for what they expected Buffalo to do defensively. They were throwing early uh, on early downs, throwing with intent like they have been for the last month plus and for most of the season if you cut out that early part of the year. Some of the numbers, Sean, you mentioned they've ended up with a lower pass rate in the late part of the season. Is, I mean, they've all you mentioned they've been winning a lot of games, right? So they get they're passing with intent, but they're getting out ahead uh, and and then running some after building a lead and some of those elements. But it's uh, everything that you said about the protection is going to matter because there are situations where you can't throw as much as you'd like to because you can't protect. And we saw that, and this is a game that we talked a lot about. In week eight, after week six and seven were those two games where they really burst onto the scene with pass rates over expected incredibly high. Everything was going well for Cincinnati. It looked like they understood they need to throw with intent on early downs. They get two wins. They went to Cleveland on a Monday night and they got absolutely shellacked, Sean. And they got shellacked, as we talked about on the show then, because they could not protect Joe Burrow. He took five sacks in that game. But as you described, Sacks can be on the offensive line. They could be on the quarterback. In this case, I feel like the five sacks was a good, like was good by Burroughs for him to have avoided some. He was under pressure constantly in that game. If they can't protect him, they can't throw as much as they'd like to. That's sort of the issue. That's what, I mean, he can't be under so much pressure that he can't make plays as you were just describing. He's one of the best under pressure, but like, does it become such an issue that they can't do anything? And that's what we saw in that Cleveland game. We haven't really seen it since. Their offensive line really started to gel. It seemed like the very next week they win against Carolina, and then they get a bye week, and really coming out of the bye, everything had been really strong for them from that point forward. You look at Burrow Sacks, way down since that five-sack game. He has not had another game up until last week against Baltimore. He had a four-sack game, but the rest of the regular season, no more than two sacks in any game. And those sacks, I mean – Pressure rate probably matters more than sacks, but the sacks are killer to drives in terms of an actual outcome. And whether that's on the line or on Burrow, they can't have these games. You know, weeks one and week two, he had seven, took seven sacks, took six sacks. That Cleveland game, he took five. You're killing drives when you're taking those sacks. I'm right there with you. I think that's the whole story of this game. Can the Bengals do what they want to do? Can they pass with intent? Can they pass on early downs on first and tens? and then use the pass to sort of set up the run as they've done so effectively for the second half of the season? Or are the Bills going to be able, against an offensive line that is not at full strength, are they going to be able to disrupt passing on early downs, passing on non-obvious situations, with the which the Bengals have used to support Burrow? I mean, if I'm the Bills' defensive coordinator, I'm sitting here going, this is a team – that is winning because they're passing on early downs in non-obvious situations. Their running game is not that effective. Joe Mixon is not the guy that we're worried about beating us, and their offensive line is banged up. I'm going to treat every down like a pass down, and I'm going to try to put as much pressure on him as I can all game long. And if the Bills do that from a game plan perspective, and if the Bengals can't stop that, I mean, this 5.5 line, point line, it's going to make a lot of sense pretty quick, and, and it might seem, frankly, too small. You can see the Bills – really dominating in that if they're able to execute that the way again I go back to that Cleveland game the way Cleveland was able to on that Monday night Cleveland went on to win that game 32 to 13 but absolutely dominated the first half 
dominated the early part of the game. They're up 25-0 after three quarters, actually. Bengals scored 13 points in the fourth, but um, it was over long before then. So that's the concern if you're a Bengals fan. I, I've been really excited about this game for weeks and very excited about Burrow, but you just hate to see all the offensive line issues and be unsure about how that's going to play out. Will they have the answers? And we'll probably get to see fairly quickly. The Bills don't create pressure at quite the same rate as some of the other playoff teams that are remaining, but they are 11th in pressures per game. They're tied for third in bats and deflections per game, and that's something that kind of pops to mind when you think of how teams try to neutralize the pass rush to neutralize issues that they have on the offensive line. You have these really short drops, get the ball out of the hand, but then you're just standing right there with the defensive line a couple of feet away. Those guys just put their hands up and bat those balls down. If we watch the first couple of possessions and we get three or four batted balls for Joe Burrow, I think that already there, you know, the Bengals are going to have a really difficult time. It means they're not running their real plays. They're not able to get back and get the ball deep to Chase and Higgins. If they can't, they're going to lose that game. Then what about the Chiefs, right? I've said, and partly I'm just trying to prepare myself for what the worst case scenario is as a Chiefs fan. But over the second half of the season, we have watched them stay in games with inferior teams now they still more or less don't lose they have that game to the Bengals, which had uh, some crazy stat and being you know the only game that patrick mahomes and andy reed have more or less lost ever <laughs> in the second half of the season you think about the regular season dominance for the chiefs in addition to how you know relatively impressive they've been in recent postseasons they just don't lose late in the season but this year they didn't lose except for that Bengals game and yet they also were not that impressive. And when you look at the Chiefs' numbers from the first half to the second half, and then you look at some of their weapons, one of the things in terms of trying to figure out these playoff contests is what could you do to pivot off of Travis Kelsey? Because he's going to be a first-round pick in draft-style leagues. He's going to be extremely heavily rostered in the FFPC contest. Obviously, he gives you a lot of of flexibility in terms of the different scenarios in which he would be the best scorer for the Kansas City Chiefs, right? But Patrick Mahomes somehow led the NFL in passing yards and passing touchdowns, despite being saddled with one of the worst receiving cores in the league. He also led in passing yards and was tied for the lead with Dak Prescott, player you mentioned, uh, as having the extreme upside. We know Prescott has that upside tied with Prescott for the most passing touchdowns from week 10 on, it's almost impossible to figure out how he did that because you dive into the numbers for the receivers and I mean, there's just nothing there, right? You have Juju Smith-Schuster who has a 6.4 target depth, only drawing 15% targets. There's no touchdown production. <laughs> you have Marquez Valdez-Scantling who never catches the ball in that stretch. 4.7 targets per game, only 2.1 receptions per game. When you have Patrick Mahomes pulling the trigger on you and you're catching that far below 50% of your targets, even though some of those targets in his defense are he's, deep targets. He's mediocre, Sean. As, as Richard Sherman would say, we tried to say this in the offseason. MVS is mediocre, man. He's not great. He's not great. And then you, know, you look at Kadarius Tony as an interesting pivot. You look at Sky Moore as someone who's going to come back uh, from this minor injury and maybe the playoffs will be his breakout. But, I mean, these guys, they don't even run any routes, right? Tony's high week 10. He runs 17 routes, immediately gets hurt. And so then you have to wait 
to week 17, gets 15 routes there, just six routes in week 18. And you think about those touchdowns, you think about the high-value touches. I mean, Kadarius Tony is basically the jerk McKinnon of their wide receiving group. And so you can make that contrarian play, but you have to realize like just how narrow it is. I mean, Sky Moore doesn't run any routes, 22%. In the first half of the season, 26%. In the second half of the season, there's no step forward there. And the other thing is that teams have slowed Travis Kelsey. Now, not stopped. You're not going to stop Travis Kelsey, but they've slowed him down. That's one of the reasons that Jarek McKinnon outscored him in this playoff time period. My thesis for this year was that teams were going to do whatever it took to stop Travis Kelsey, force the other pieces to beat them. Travis Kelsey is either too good and obviously that is part of it or teams just didn't wake up to the fact that they had to play it that way until late he's gotten increasingly gimmicky and difficult defensive coverage in the last six weeks or so i think that you have to be terrified as a chiefs fan even with this spread that you talked about that the jaguars are going to come out and do whatever it takes to limit Travis Kelsey, and then you wonder just what the Chiefs are going to do. One of the things that has been frustrating is that they haven't used McKinnon enough either, given the fact that he's the guy as this hybrid running back threat that gives you explosive plays as a runner. He gives you that receiving value that you need when you're going to call as many passes as the Chiefs do and when your receivers are terrible. For them to be successful, I think they're going to have to deploy McKinnon much more often in this game. They need to have Pacheco firmly seated on the bench but the Chiefs have also done the weird thing this year where they have made a big mistake in virtually every game. And because recently their opponents aren't that great, and because they're the Kansas City Chiefs, they've been able to overcome that. You cannot make that kind of mistake in this game because you're facing Trevor Lawrence and this fun group of receivers. And unlike some of their other matchups recently, the Jaguars are not going to play this game passively. You know that you have to go out and score touchdowns to win there are just a lot of different scenarios really where the Jaguars do hit on some of these plays and maybe the Chiefs win. But if you're a Chiefs fan, you don't want this game to come down to the last possession. And I think we're trending in a direction where that is very possible. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's a, I mean, that's a fun breakdown. It's the thing that stands out to me. I mean, in terms of how the game would play, it's fun. It's maybe not fun for you as a a Chiefs fan to to think that way. Um, But the thing that stands out to me from everything you just said, well, there's two things. One, you pointed out how bad the wide receiver play has been. And I mean, just pulling it up, like it is crazy that Mahomes threw 41 touchdowns this year. He didn't have a receiver catch more than four. I mean, Michael Hardman was that receiver who caught four. He didn't have any other receiver catch more than three, which was Juju. Did spread around to a couple. I mean, MVS had two. Justin Watson had two. Kadarius Tony had two. Um, backup tight ends combined for four. Jody Fortson had two. Gray had one. Blake Bell had one. But really, I mean, Travis Kelsey caught 12. Jerick McKinnon caught nine. And CEH caught three earlier in the year. So you have the 
the like lead receiving back sort of hybrid CEH and then obviously McKinnon being the better one at that role combining for 12 as well. So you have the, you have the, the Kelsey 12, you have the McKinnon RB role 12 and no receiver catching more than four is pretty shocking. And when you talk about the, the, the playoff challenge, I mean, I've been moving this way as I've been thinking through it, but I think you just really kind of nailed it on the head because the thing that I, the rule that we've always been saying with the playoff challenge is you want your quarterback to play in the Super Bowl. Well, I mean, certainly you could you can play Mahomes into the Super Bowl. But the other thing that has happened and can happen and did happen last year with Josh Allen is the, the quarterback can play outside the Super Bowl if he scores enough points. And if the ways that he's scoring points aren't going to the, – the, the easy way to say it is that if, if it's not concentrated to the skill position players – but this isn't even what happened with Allen last year because Gabe Davis had a four-touchdown game. It was concentrated. The uh, The real way to say it is that they're not going to the players that are chalky in that passing game because last year it was Allen and it was Diggs. And then some people played Jerick, uh, excuse me, uh, Devin Singletary because he had the really good run late in the regular season last year. Very few people had played Gabe Davis. It doesn't really matter if it's concentrated to the secondary pieces or not. If no one's playing that guy, it doesn't doesn't affect the contest too much. Allen scored at an incredibly high rate for two games, and he did it without consolidating production to Diggs. Mahomes is the guy in this contest that you can look at and go, it is really easy to see a scenario where he throws, you know, eight or nine touchdowns over the next three games and goes to the Super Bowl. And also it doesn't consolidate to his top guys, primarily because the only top guy, and he only has one top guy that's being played at any kind of rate in these contests, and that's Kelsey. McKinnon to a little bit of a lesser degree, but you can see a scenario where Justin Watson catches a touchdown, MVS catches a touchdown, Juju catches a touchdown. You know, Tony has a couple, or, or Hardman. Those guys combine for a couple in their red zone role. Um, the the backup tight ends potentially, and then yeah, Kelsey catches one or two, McKinnon catches one or two, but the the touchdowns are spread, the pass volume is spread in a way that a lot of the other offenses in this in this contest and in the playoffs still are more concentrated. We kind of know who the guys are. The Chiefs is the one team that you look at and you go, I expect this team is able to win, but I also don't know who the guys are. I mean, Kelsey's the guy and McKinnon's the number two guy. Who's the number three guy? Who? I mean, it could be anyone. It, it could, honest to God, it could still be Sky Moore, Sean. I mean, like, we don't know who's going to step up. Justin Watson's still been running a ton of routes, has hit on some long touchdowns. It would not surprise me if he had a 40, 50-yard touchdown in one of these playoff games. And those types of plays, they can happen in any offense. Quez Watkins can have that for Jalen Hurts, et cetera. It's more likely in the Chiefs offense that it could be sort of all Mahomes points in a way that, you know, if Burrow makes a run, you feel like it's going to be a lot of chase. Or if it's not chase, it's Higgins. And there are people that are playing Higgins in this contest. If if Hurts makes a run, it's probably going to be A.J. Brown. If it's not A.J. Brown, it's going to be Devonta Smith or it's Goddard. There are going to be people playing those guys. Basically, every other team, you can pick one, two, the third guy, and there's going to be at least some people. A lot of times the third guy is only going to be 5% rostered in this contest, but at least that's still hundreds of lineups. At least somewhere he's going to be in some lineups. This Chiefs team, it's like, how do you pick anyone? I don't. I We, we like Juju around here, Sean. It would be really hard to put Juju into a lineup. I don't know how you pick anyone else. And the answer to that is, well, you probably just pick Mahomes and you pivot off of Kelsey. Anyway, that's, uh, you know, apart from the game that's on the field, I thought you did a great job of breaking down the game. I do think the Chiefs are going to look good. I think Andy Reid's going to have them primed. 
and ready off the bye. I think Lawrence and, and the Jaguars and their comeback was, again, I've said this a couple times, but it was more about the Chargers than it seemed. I don't think they are quite ready to take this huge step forward. I go back to their win over the Titans in Week 18. just wasn't that impressive. I don't necessarily believe, and I do think Doug Peterson's a good coach, and I do think Trevor Lawrence is progressing. But, I mean, the fact that he threw the four touch, uh, four interceptions in the first half last week is also very telling to me. He got he faced a, a defensive coordinator who started to disguise some, some looks, you know, uh, travel with receivers on motion and try to show uh, uh, a man pre-snap, and he just locked into that. Okay, it's man, and didn't even pay attention to the field and threw right into, you know, that disguised cover two zone look with a cornerback just sitting there. I mean, some of those picks are just – he's not seeing it well enough yet. He, he needs, I think, more seasoning as a quarterback to be good enough to win this type of game, to be able to, to, to make those reads. And, I mean, in fairness, he's already done it at a really high level in college and won some huge games. Maybe lessons learned, but there are enough red flags for me with the Jaguars over the last couple of weeks that I think they're going to get exposed, actually, in this game. I'm not I'm not in agreement with you that this is going to come down to a field goal. I think the Chiefs actually walk over the Jaguars. And that would be a great scenario. We we really like that one. We're going to go with Ben's pick on that. It is interesting when the Jaguars have the ball and just how successful Trevor Lawrence is with pressure. The Jaguars receivers and a lot of our tools look like pretty compelling plays. Part of that is the Chiefs do give up some plays on the back end. And one of the reasons for that is just teams have to attack them more than you really have to attack any other team in football because you're going to have to do it or you're going to lose. The flip side of that is that the Chiefs are third in the NFL in pressures per game. They're number one in the NFL in batted balls per game. So you see those two things kind of working in concert to where you can go through some possessions where they're pass rush. And you think about someone like Chris Jones, perhaps the most dynamic and <laughs> wreckage causing defensive lineman interior defensive lineman in the nfl right now if not the most one of the top couple that can cause problems and so if you see those mistakes that trevor lawrence made against the chargers they could be amplified against the chiefs but you can't make nearly the same number of mistakes that you did there if they have those problems again they're not going to come back in the same way the chiefs will bury you they'll put up 50 I did like love your notes on Patrick Mahomes and how to play him. One other kind of fun piece of information when you're trying to figure out how to play these playoff contests. I like playing Sky Moore and Justin Watson than taking those guys in the 10th round of recent gauntlet drafts. Juju Smith-Schuster, for context, goes you know at the 4-5 turn. Usually goes, obviously, to the Mahomes drafter or say the Jalen Hurts drafter trying to go with an Eagles Chiefs blend for that roster. But I mean, you're talking about prices on Juju and MVS. Do you sort of have to make when you're building a Chiefs roster and yet you're giving up far better players? So that part of it is uncomfortable. I like just going ahead and saying, you know, it's going to be somebody out of nowhere if it works to build a roster that way at all. But the thing with Patrick Mahomes, and this is something that you talk about all the time, but I mean, he's willing to do whatever it takes in the postseason. And not only is it concentrated in terms of him being the guy who creates all the production, and then you have the little pieces there. So, I mean, he's the fantasy weapon, not other players other than Travis Kelsey. 
but he also is willing to do whatever it takes in terms of actually using his legs a little bit 80 regular season starts he's rushed for 50 yards on six occasions 11 playoff games he's done it three times right if you get a big rushing game from Patrick Mahomes in the postseason that adds to his fantasy totals that part not nearly as surprising as it would be in a regular season game yeah that would be a big boost for for the case to use you know to be really in on him on in the playoff formats and especially over FFPC Sean We've, I mean, we've had a blast breaking down the AFC teams. We might uh, games. We might have to go through the NFC games a little bit quicker, but they are, I mean, I think equally as intriguing. The Giants Eagles one, maybe it sounds like we kind of agree that the Giants maybe might not be ready for the Eagles. I felt like Brian Dable did a great job scheming in that Minnesota game, and we've talked all season about how the running quarterbacks have added another element in the real football perspective of of how to attack the way defenses have been playing. Scoring had been down all season. Defense is sitting back. Um, trying to prevent deeper throws, keeping more DBs on the field, giving offenses run looks and asking them to run a lot and matriculate the ball down the field. But one thing that the running quarterbacks have done is you're going to give us a run look and we have the ability at the line and then the front seven to hold your edge players and make them set the edge because our quarterback can pull it and run. Now our running backs are going to have incredible efficiency as well, which we've seen with the, the Russian quarterbacks influence that. Or the quarterback can run a ton. And those teams have all, it's been a big part of some of the, you know, surprise teams this year, Giants being almost chief among them, especially when you see that they go into Minnesota and they win with Daniel Jones running, I think it was a career high, like, amount of times in that game. Um, I think I heard that. I have not actually looked it up. But anyway, he ran for like 70 yards. It was some number in the teens of rush attempts, 15, 17 rush attempts. That works against a defense like the Vikings because you're asking them to be disciplined. You're asking them to have all of the responsibilities accounted for and to be communicating and to have no blown coverages. And we know Minnesota, from a defensive perspective, has not been capable of that all year. As they go into Philly, they're they're going to be facing a defense that, number one, is just not that undisciplined. Is I'm not saying the Eagles are the best defense in the league, but they are going to be more disciplined. They're going to understand what they need to do from a game plan perspective. They haven't had all of the broken coverages and everything that Minnesota's had all year. And then number two, it's just more talented as well. And I think when you get into that matchup where you can't just out-scheme a defense that doesn't communicate well, suddenly you have to have the talent as well as an intelligent scheme. Dable might have more answers, but it kind of feels like he threw the book at the Vikings a little bit. And now he's going into Philadelphia and he's going to have to come up with more stuff. I mean, they know that Daniel Jones is going to run now. He put that on film all week last week. They're going to try to have answers for that. What can Dable continue to do? And even if he tries to continue to do it, is the Eagles defense just so much better than the Vikings that you need talent on top of that? You need more than Isaiah Hodgins. As much as we love Isaiah Hodgins, it's been so great to see him perform and up to that prospect profile that was a fun day three you know profile a couple of years ago when the bills took him you can't have that as your number one receiver and richie james and darius slayton i mean what weapons do these guys even have if they're playing a defense that can't be just out schemed like the vikings were last week that's really the perfect way to describe it you have this elite eagles defense in the contrast with the Vikings were one of the things that they did this season was overcome a train wreck of a defense. So people want to talk about, Oh, they were not even a playoff caliber team, much less a 13 and 14. 
you kind of have to give credit where it's due to Justin Jefferson and those guys overcoming it. You also have a situation where I think obviously sadly for him, their defensive coordinator gets fired in the wake of that playoff loss. I mean, that's how bad all of that was in addition to the struggles that they had at this season. Then you go and you play this Eagles team. I, mentally for me, and when we all have these particular games or images or what have you that stick in your head and you and really influence how you see a team and it's one reason to balance what you watch with good information so that you don't get too locked into a certain result or something emotionally really sticks with you but the game where the eagles play gardner Minshew and still score at will against the cowboys but give up 40 points and lose that's the game that kind of sticks for me and makes me believe that the Eagles actually are plenty exploitable by an offense that is willing to come at them and has the weapons and has the talent. The question is whether or not the Giants actually have that. I've made the case for it, but I do think that from a numbers perspective, you have to understand that you're really swimming against the tide. You have that terrible Vikings defense, and then this week you have the team that's number one in pressure percentage and number one in yards per cover snap allowed. Well, that's tough, right? That's tough. And so you pull up the passing matchup reader and you look at it, and Isaiah Hodgins has the worst matchup and just really a catastrophic matchup, according to the PMR. The worst matchup of any starting wide receiver in this week's playoff contest and by a lot. And so that part worries me, right? Especially as someone where we've got him live in one of our regular contests. He's someone who is kind of interesting to us for the playoff challenge too. The flip side of that is that the PMR likes the route profile for Richie James and how that matches up with what the Eagles do defensively a lot better. He's got more of a neutral matchup. So neutral isn't good, but if you're trying to decide between those two guys, I mean, it's very difficult to put James in a lineup after watching what Hodgins did just last week and what he has been doing. The flip side of it is that before just last week, I mean, James, who had more or less a nothing game, in their upset victory. I and mean, he was one of the, the hottest wide receivers in the NFL from week 11 to 17, commanded targets on 24% of his routes. That was 18% for Hodgins, four games with 15 plus points. Obviously we know that he's this underneath threat, but he could be a target hawk. So if you do think that the Eagles are gonna win this game easily and are gonna get up two or three touchdowns and the Giants are gonna have to throw a lot, but maybe not throw a lot in the way that they want to, but that they're forced to, and they have to take checkdowns. James, and then obviously Saquon Barkley, I think. I mean, Barkley, someone I've been overdrafting in underdog, and Barkley, someone I think just think it's very difficult to get away from in the FFPC contest, even though you know other people are going to be playing him too. I don't know that that's the place to pivot. The interesting thing now is that we have mentioned with both Travis Kelsey and Saquon Barkley, guys who will have extremely high roster percentages. I mean, those make sense, and it might not be the place to pivot. Now, one of the ways that you win these contests is you take a lower percentage outcome and do play it because it will give you a lot of leverage. You just want to think through what the, what are the strengths and weaknesses of that particular tactic this week with these guys. Absolutely. And that brings us to the final game, Dallas in San Fran. I talked a little bit earlier in the show that I feel like Dak is, is the kind of streaky quarterback that can be good enough to go out and win this game. I also think he's the type of quarterback that can, look terrible and and throw three picks and and kind of make it so the Cowboys can't win this game. No way they can win the game. I was a little bit more concerned about Dallas when I saw the Jason Peters injury last week before I dug into sort of their 
offensive line usage. They signed Peters because they had Tyron Smith banged up for most of the year, and they were using him, but using him sort of sparingly. In week 18, they finally used him as sort of their full-time left tackle, and Peters is the longtime eagle, right? They kind of brought him out of retirement to, to have him play. They use him as a full-time left tackle. They kick their left tackle, their rookie, uh, Tyler Smith, into left guard for that game. They kick their typical left guard, Connor McGovern, into center for that game. And they've had Tyron Smith since about week 13, week 14, out at right tackle. They have Zach Martin at right guard, really good right side of the line right now. Uh, Peters played the full game in week 18. He started the game in the wild card round, and he got hurt. And I thought that might be more of a concern. But really, the way they responded was they just kicked – uh, Tyler Smith back out to left tackle. He's played left tackle for the majority of the season. And then uh, McGovern was actually the one that they weren't using in the wild card round. They had their normal center back in. They just brought him back in in the left guard after the Peters injury. And he's been their left guard for the majority of the season. So what I'm saying is Peters not practicing this week. It sounds doubtful for him, but they will, even despite that injury of, a, of an offensive lineman who Peters is a hall of fame left tackle. And even though he's very old, has played at a high level and they wanted to start him in the wild card game. Their line's probably not as good as it could be, but even though he's going to be out, they're still going to be able to put together their offensive line that has basically been their offensive line for the majority of the season outside of Tyron Smith, who hasn't been the right tackle all year. But the left side will be what it's been. Tyler Smith has been their left tackle. McGovern has been their left guard. I Again, it, it, it means that their offensive line isn't as good as it could be, but it's also not a disaster. And yet when you're going up against the 49ers and that front seven and that, and, and that defense, you'd kind of still like to have Jason Peters active. I guess you'd like to have your best possible offensive line that you're putting out there. Like I said, I was a little bit concerned about their, their line stuff. I'm not as concerned. I think if Dak can play at a really high level, they can win the big difference for me in this game. I mean, the, you can point to the quarterback and say Dak's more seasoned and probably better than Brock Purdy. The difference for me is the depth of the skill position groups. The 49ers did some really fun stuff last week. I mean, we saw Debo in the backfield and being used like he typically did. We saw a play after they had shown Debo running in the backfield a couple of times where they then split McCaffrey out wide with Debo in the backfield and then ran McCaffrey on a slant. It's like when you have this many chess pieces, it's almost like why is why is Debo in the backfield and McCaffrey in the slot as opposed to vice versa because you can just play those guys in their normal positions. Well, they're asking the defense to try to figure out who who to guard and how to guard them you can't just put a linebacker on Debo out of the backfield because he can run a wheel right out of the backfield and just burn a linebacker down the field. How do you answer when when this team is so multiple and diverse and they're and they're using um, motion and misdirection and all of those things? They have an incredibly well schemed offense. Obviously, I didn't even mention Kittle, Ayuk, Elijah Mitchell as another running back that that brings you know obviously plenty of talent. Was great last season. The Cowboys. Basically have CeeDee Lamb, Tony Pollard, Dalton Schultz. They're still giving Zeke Elliott, you know, 10 plus carries a game. I saw some stat where in his last 50 carries or something, Ezekiel Elliott has had like sub two yards per carry rate. He rushed 13 times for 27 yards last week, eight for 10 the week before, uh, 19 times for 37 the week before that. You're talking about, you know, since week 16 hasn't had a yards per carry over 2.1 in any of those three games. And they're still giving him carries, like a decent number. And, and even before that, he doesn't have yards per carry above four since, you know, week 14. And, and even just in an individual game, I mean, this guy's just been very inefficient. And they're still giving him a lot of opportunities 
first thing they're going to have to do if they want to win this game is cut that out immediately. But like not getting a lot out of Michael Gallup, not getting a lot out of their other receivers. They made that clear throughout the season that they were concerned about that. They were talking to Odell Beckham. There was rumors of bringing back a 50-year-old Terrell Owens at one point. This team doesn't have the depth of weapons that the Niners do. Their offensive line, probably not as good as a Niners offensive line that has Trent Williams, another Hall of Fame left tackle and an even better one probably in his more in his prime. He's, he's getting up there in age two, but he's not as old as Jason Peters, certainly. And he's going to play is the, is the bigger thing. The Niners have so many weapons. Brock Purdy didn't play a flawless game. He had a great stat line. They had players wide open all game against the, the Seahawks, and he did miss some throws on some wide open players. Going to be tougher against the Cowboys defense, absolutely. And you can see scenarios where Purdy can make some mistakes and really cost them. So far, he's been very, very poised. My breakdown of this game is like, both of these quarterbacks can melt down. Both of these quarterbacks, and, and in Purdy's case, the team around him, they can play well enough, put up numbers well enough to win the game, to make their offense really hyper-efficient. And quarterback's such an important position. It's a hard one for me to analyze because, you know, if, it's kind of like you said early, in an earlier game. I think we'll know pretty quickly if we're seeing, uh, you know, Dak really comfortable against his defense in the first few drives. I'll feel good about, about Dallas's chances to, to pull this upset. If we're seeing Purdy really comfortable against this Cowboys defense and Shanahan in his bag early, I, I'll feel comfortable about the Niners, although Shanahan does have that habit of having a great scripted 15 plays and then kind of running out of steam sometimes mid-game. Mid it might be a mild concern if if they're in, if he's in his bag early that he won't keep that up all game. But the quarterbacks are the key for me. I, you know, Both of them can, can be uh, good in this game or can be bad in this game. But I do think San Fran just overwhelms them with options offensively and skill position depth and a, and a better defense, even though both defenses are very good. Yeah, and that difference in depth in the passing game, I think, is going to come into play in a big way because the 49ers probably can make them one-dimensional. And the Cowboys this season have had this dynamic weapon in Tony Pollard that just very few teams have. And when you have that explosiveness in the running game, then it gives you more things. Obviously the defense has to account for, but it also just gives you particular plays where you score and don't have to, you know, have this 10, 15, 20 play drive. I don't think that that's going to be there. I hope it is Tony Pollard. One of my favorite players, he finishes the regular season. Number one in yards after contact at 3.7 per attempt. I mean, those are, are huge numbers. He's number three in evasion rate at 22%. As a result, over the second half of the season, he gets a pretty decent edge and opportunity over Elliott. Leads him to snap share, target share, opportunities, expected points. He outperforms by 3.4 points per game. You want to keep that in mind. Is like just how much over expectation he has to be to hit on the kind of numbers that allowed him to be the overall RB5 from week 10 on. But the other element there is that he has the thigh injury, he misses week 17, and then he just hasn't looked remotely like himself the last two weeks. Now, some of that is just that when you create all of these huge plays, you, you can't do it every time. And when you don't do it, then he's like, oh, I mean, not 100%. It could just be randomness, but I mean, he did not look like he usually looks. I mean, he usually looks almost like Jamal Charles. If you have a Jamal Charles back there, then you can do some things even against these crazy defenses. And the 49ers, you just can't run against, right? We talked about how Tony Pollard led the NFL in yards after contact. Well, the 49ers were number one in terms of limiting yards after contact. 
they were number one in limiting these boom plays. So the types of plays that Tony Pollard really lives on. Once you get then one dimensional, it becomes tricky because the 49ers can get after you. They're number one in hits on the quarterback. They also limit the boom plays in the passing game. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure on Dak Prescott and then a lot of pressure on CD Lamb. One of the things that we exploited in the playoff one contest last week is that if the 49ers do have a weakness, it can be covering some of these receivers. They let Metcalf get away a little bit last week. Lamb, I think, for the for the Cowboys to win. I mean, he's going to either have to have a monster game or he's going to have to take so much coverage that we can get one of these games from Dalton Schultz where you're kind of watching and wondering like, why is the defense not covering the number two target here? I mean, this upset does not happen unless Prescott or Lamb, and almost certainly it has to be the combination of those two guys working together, that they play really, really big. Because on the other side, as you mentioned, I mean, the, the 49ers are going to score. The Cowboys are a weird defense too. And you can kind of go back and think to the game against the Jaguars, the game against the Eagles that I already referenced, where that's a 40-34 game, I believe, and Gardner Minshew tears them apart. When I'm looking at the, the passing matchup Raider, looking at weeks 11 through 18, and during that stretch, the coverage has been weak enough that Debo Samuel has the number one matchup for this week. So when you're talking about how do you get off of Christian McCaffrey, I mean, Debo, we watched the 74-yard catch-and-run touchdown. You're not going to have one of those every week. But with Debo Samuel, they come much more often than they do for most players. I don't see how they take him away, but then also take away the other pieces. There are just too many of them. Now, the Cowboys can bring the pass rush. You mentioned that Purdy made some mistakes even in the victory. That's the one way I see this working out. For the Cowboys to win, you have to have this Prescott to Lamb connection blowing up, and you have to have Purdy melting down because of the pressure. I think I said the Eagles were number one in pressure. They're number one in sack percentage the cowboys are number one in pressure and number two in sack percentage i mean they can bring the heat we know that they have maybe the greatest defensive player in football right now he has to have a big game but you keep coming back to it the 49ers have a lot of ways to win for the cowboys to win their superstars have to show up in a huge huge way yeah i think that's incredibly well put as well sean and that's really the the takeaway i mean i started the show saying, can any of these teams pull an upset? I think when you take them in some, you would guess that at least one of them will, frankly. Um, it'll be interesting to see who that might be because they all have paths to it. And I think you did a good job of, of, of articulating that side of it because I am kind of more stuck on the, the favorites just being the better teams here, which is, again, like we said, what the market thinks. It's smart to be considering alternate you know scenarios that's when that's where you find profitability and in, in the things that we do the the fancy football games and the and the betting and everything else you got to find ways to think through things a little bit differently than what the market expects but the the real sum of of all of those things was yeah i mean these underdogs they're good teams they have has they have players that have played well they won last week to get to where they are but they're going to have to play, like you just described, Dallas, very uh, efficiently, not miss opportunities, execute, and their best players are going to have to come up big. And even then, that's, in some of those cases, just going to get them into games, and then they're going to need some breaks, right? They're going to need a fumble return or 
some clock stuff to work there, you know, favorably. The last possession of the half, last possession of the game, you steal an extra possession. If you can navigate all of those in-game things and you get your big players big and big moments, you know, winning 50-50 balls downfield. As you were saying that about CeeDee Lamb, I'm envisioning – well, I was envisioning the drop early this this season where he had the big – the big, I think it was against the Giants maybe, maybe like week two. He had a big game but also had the big drop downfield. It's like he's got to have the big game and also make that play downfield when he gets that opportunity in this one. And if it's a 50-50 ball in coverage, he's got to go up and make the Des Bryant play – you know, at Lambeau that Des definitely caught. Um, he Lamb's got to be that player in this game for the Cowboys. But he can be. I think he can be. Um, it's just, you know, you, you, you ask a guy to do that 10 times, it's hard to be perfect more than half of those times, right? And so it does seem less likely the same time he can, right? He could probably do it three times out of 10, a perfect game where he – makes every single play that is asked of him and some sub 50% catch probability type plays he goes and gets. And I, you know, I say that of lamb, I'm saying it of the Jaguars. They need ETN to make some, some huge plays. And obviously the passing game weapons they they have uh, you look at the Bengals, they need Joe Burrow to play despite probably more pressure than he's going to be comfortable with over his head, Jamar Chase and Higgins to be playing over their heads. Uh, and you look at the giants, they need, I mean, they need Saquon to make some big plays. Again, I'm going to go back to the running back there. They have an electric running back who could influence the game, and they're going to need Daniel Jones to make plays with his legs, with his arm, play over his head. It's it's not impossible for these upsets to get pulled. It will require these guys to play at their, at their absolute peak, but that's what's fun about the playoffs. Again, the other thing we talked about early on, this is the week where sort of legends are made. You know, This is the week where if, if the Jaguars or the Giants win – they made a conference championship run. Maybe they don't go on to win the Super Bowl, but that gets remembered. Remember that year that team made that conference championship run? It was pretty uh, unexpected. You don't get that type of memory just from winning in the wild card round. You got to go in and win a divisional round game. And we've seen it over the years. We've seen teams that we then look back on and we go, man, that team was playing good football at that time. But this time last year, the Niners are another team that we didn't really think too highly of going into Green Bay. They won a really kind of fluky game, cold weather game. They got a pup a punt block for a touchdown late. And then they went in and they almost beat the Rams as well to play a competitive game against the Rams the next week. People weren't really picking them to go into Green Bay and win. They didn't actually outplay them, but things broke favorably for them. They got that win. That's probably going to happen somewhere this year, right? And I just don't know necessarily where it's going to be. I, I do like the favorites all ind individually, but man, it's going to be fun to see it, if it does happen, one of these teams play to their absolute peak of their capabilities and, and challenge one of these Titans. Not the Tennessee Titans, one of these Titans of the league. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. As you so eloquently put, I mean, this this is the best weekend in football. I hope we get points. I hope we get points. One of the things we got last week and made the FFPC contest interesting, these gauntlet tournaments interesting. A lot of different combinations. You hate for it to come down with the contest to really just like one guy. And you had to be on one guy. And it was, I mean, if it's out of nowhere, that's fine. But if we get the kind of scoring that creates a rich viewing experience, number one, that from a reality perspective this weekend stays with us for a decade, that's the number one thing I'm looking for. And then variety and excitement in these playoff tournaments. Ben, the next thing you and I are going to do is put together some teams for ourselves. Hopefully 
the breakdown today has been helpful for some listeners as you attack a wide variety of playoff leagues over the next 24 hours. And we wish you the best of luck in those contests. We wish you as a fan good fortune. We hope your team wins. That's been Ceiling Bananas for today. I'm Sean Siegel. With me as always is Ben Gretsch. You can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Sign up for Ceiling Signals. Sign up for Ceiling Lines, his fantastic betting product with Dalton Cates. We'd love to have you guys over at Rotoviz if you want to check out that article or any others. You can save yourself a little money, get 10% off a one-year subscription with the coupon code RVRADIO2023 at checkout. Ben, we've had lots of people leaving us ratings and reviews. We appreciate every single one of those. They definitely help. Subscribe to the feed to get these shows when they come out over the next couple of months. Obviously, early in the offseason, have a little bit more of an alternate tempo in all likelihood. You'll get them when they are available and won't have to search if you're subscribed to the feed. And then leave us a comment on YouTube. Those are always good for the algorithm as well. And they're just fun in general. Keep that conversation going. We love you all. Good luck this weekend. We'll talk to you soon.